We've made it to the final chapter of this book. We're actually going to finish the book of 2 Corinthians next week. And then we have some exciting things planned after that. We'll bring you up to speed on all that next Sunday. Uh, But today, as we begin to bring this study to a close, we're going to talk about the power of personal examination. The power of personal examination. That's the title of today's message. And it brings in the theme of this chapter. We've given you a theme for every chapter, so we're we're at the last one. And and the theme for chapter 13 is power. It's it's a balance to chapter 12, which which the theme of that was humility. And so those provide the perfect balance for the minister because what we're going to see in chapter 13 specifically today is that the minister must, in, in addition to having humility, the minister must also develop a boldness through the strength of the Lord to stand and to challenge others to act. And this is exactly what Paul does as he gets to this final portion of this letter, as he closes out this book, he lays out his final warnings and his final warning to the Corinthians here in these first few verses of chapter 13. And it's kind of a summary of everything that he's dealt with, with them, everything he's continuing to deal with. And so it is a very good summary for us as well. And I think it nails the problem of what the church as a whole is dealing with today. And then it also gives us solution because, because that's what God always does. And so it, it applies directly to us. It apply, applies to this church. It applies to the church overall. And it applies to our individual lives as well. And today's passage of Scripture, it obviously comes off what we saw last week, where Paul said that he feared for them. He was concerned that some of the Corinthians were in a dangerous spot in their life and in ministry. And it was because while they were examining Paul's life and Paul's credentials and Paul's supposed shortcomings, they had neglected to examine their own. And and I just want you to know that's a dangerous place to be. But as it turns out, the church today isn't much different than the church in in Corinth in that first century. And it's because the world has infiltrated the church. You know, unfortunately, the world has had more influence over the church than the church has the world. And Paul was dealing with that same problem in Corinth. Corinth was one of the largest and and most influential cities in Greece in, in the first century. In Greece... I mean, if, if you know a little bit about history, you know, Greece basically ruled the world until they fell to the Romans not, not long before the birth of Christ. So for hundreds of years, they were the, the, kind of the, the superpower of the world. And Greece was a cultural center. It was known for its philosophy and art, even, even known for, for mathematics and medicine. And so by the time Paul evangelized that city, that worldly influence, that cultural center that Greece had been, it, it it was very strong. So you're only, by the time that first century and, and Paul is, is there doing his work in Corinth, you're only, you know, three to four hundred years removed from guys like Plato and Socrates. And, you know, you've, you've heard of them, the, the, you know, the fathers of philosophy. And this was part of the problem that the Corinthians were having because they had bought into that worldly thinking and it, and it had even seeped into the church. And, and listen... That's no different than today. We're seeing that same thing today, and it have been for quite a while. It's kind of like God knew what he was talking about when he said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, that the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. 
and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there's no new thing under the sun. The church today, as a whole, has bought into worldly thinking. And it's because in Laodicea, we don't want to submit ourselves to authority. We want to be the authority. You see, we don't want to have to examine ourselves against the standard. We want to set the standard. We want to be our own standard. We want to determine the rules so that we don't really have to look into the mirror of God's word and see how we line up against that truth. And that, of course, is a societal problem, but unfortunately it's more than that. It's a church problem, too. It's a Christian problem. And, and listen, worldly philosophy, or I mean, maybe not even worldly philosophy, just philosophy in general and, and that line of thinking has always had some influence over the church. Now, oddly enough, some of it God used for good, but not most of it. So I'm going to give you a, a very quick and kind of ridiculously oversimplified view of, of philosophy and worldly philosophy and how it has impacted the church, or, or maybe even better said, how it has impacted people's view of truth. So, you know, we'll just start there in Corinth. So, you, you know, back 300, 400 B.C., you had those original Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, they had a huge influence, even till today, but certainly into that first century. Now, shortly after that, the Roman Catholic Church comes into formal existence, and, and we enter what's called the Dark Ages. And during the Dark Ages, truth was dictated from the Roman Catholic Church, and everyone was told what was true. Everyone was told what to believe. Now, it was distorted. It wasn't biblical truth. But if you went against it, you died. So, so they kept control that way. And then coming out of the Dark Ages, we have the Age of Enlightenment and Renaissance. We see the Re Reformation there. Sometimes it's called the Age of Modernism. And during that time, people said, let's actually find out what the truth is. We've been told what the truth is. Why don't, why don't we go find out ourselves? We're just as smart. We can use our intellect. We're just as smart as those priests or anybody else. Let's figure it out. We need to know. And that took a couple different paths. In the church... In Christianity, it resulted in the King James Bible, it resulted in the Philadelphian church age because they, they sought after truth and they found it. And they got a hold of it and it changed their lives and the lives of everyone around them. In the world, that line of thinking resulted in, in the scientific method and great discoveries, good discoveries in, in, in science and all sorts of disciplines, but not surprisingly, that line was very anti-God. And it included guys like Charles Darwin and Karl Marx. And so you had the onset of evolution and Marxism and, and all sorts of bad stuff. Now the problem is the church got lazy. And the church got apathetic. And the world didn't. So in the two competing lines of truth, so to speak, during modernism, the world won. And because of that, as we moved into the 20th century, we entered an age that's called postmodernism. So you, you've maybe heard that term. We're in this age of postmodernism. In America, it didn't really take root until the second half of the 20th century. The sexual revolution of the 60s, the drug culture of the 60s really ramped it up here in America. And what postmodernism says is there really isn't truth. Or I will create my own truth. This, for example, is, is how you end up in a place 
where people actually believe there are more than two genders. Because you get to make it up. And since the church as a whole kind of threw in the towel around 1900, that line of thinking is no longer separate from the church. Because there's no longer a standard. And truth has become subjective. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that statement even holds some truth in good churches like ours who hold the line on the King James Bible and homosexuality and Marxism and the like. And I'm going to show that to you this morning. Because like I said, Paul's final summary warning to the Corinthians should be a good wake-up call for us today. Because there's nothing new under the sun. So with that very brief and, and not very well done history lesson uh, to, to show you kind of how we got where we are today, let me show you Paul's warning and then ultimately the answer, which is the power of personal examination. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. So read along with me there in your seat. We all need to see God's word to us this morning. The Bible says, this is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before, and I foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you it is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he is crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I think we're all going to need it this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. Uh, we're so thankful for your word. And even at times um, uh, in messages like today, I think uh, personally, um, it, it has hurt me this week, and it, it stings, and I, and I think it's going to sting for, for a lot of us this morning. Um, but Lord, but your word is true, and, and it has to be our standard. And so Lord, I pray that you use it in our lives today to allow us to, to examine ourselves and where we are in our faith. And so Lord, I, I just pray that the that the words that are said this morning are true to your book. I pray that, that everyone listening hears it um, in the way it's intended, Lord, just for, all for our own good. And, Lord, I pray that everything that's said and done is glorifying, it's honoring to you. And, Lord, we love you, and we ask all this in your precious son's name. Uh, amen. Okay, so you ready? Here we go. We might step on some toes this morning. I'm just, I'm just going to warn you. But to be fair, my toes were stepped on all week long. So... So we're, we're, in, we're in the same place, but this could get interesting. Um, but again, this is a summary message. It's, a, it's at a high level of the problems that Paul faced in Corinth and the problems we face today. Uh, but we're going to see the problem. We're going to see why the problem exists. And then we're going to see what we can do about it. So point number one, here's where we're going to start. We're going to start with the dilemma. What is the dilemma that Paul was facing? And, and by extension... What is the dilemma that, that we are facing? Look back at what Paul tells the Corinthians in verses 1 and 2. He says, This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again, 
I will not spare. So the dilemma, very simply, is that there is still sin in the church. This is the, this is the problem that Paul was dealing with. He had addressed it in 1 Corinthians, and he hit it head on. And, and they made some changes. They had gotten some things right since that first letter, but the truth is it wasn't enough. They were still allowing, to be sin, allowing sin to be present and to be a part of their lives. And you need to understand what Paul is saying here. This is very strong language from Paul. He is warning them that he, he is going to come again to them. He's going to come to them for a third time. You can see it first time in Acts 18, the second time in Acts 20. He says, I'm, I'm coming again the third time. And he said, when I get there, everything is going to be laid to bear. We're dealing with this once and for all. We're going to know what's going on, who's doing what, all of it. And we're going to deal with it. And nobody will be able to argue it because it won't be hearsay. We're going to go by the book. Because everything is going to be established with two or three witnesses. And that's a biblical pattern. That is an Old Testament law that God set up. The Old Testament law stated that nobody could be held guilty of a crime if it couldn't be supported by two or three witnesses. So you see that in verses like Numbers 35 verse 30. It says, Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. One, one witness isn't enough. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. Jesus even affirmed this Old Testament law in John chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, even proving his own deity. He said, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Paul talks about it even in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 5 with respect to receiving an accusation against an elder. 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Against an elder receive not an accusation but before two or three witnesses. If, if one person comes saying something, you don't receive that. If two or three people, all right, then you got something to talk about. And maybe the most notable affirmation of this Old Testament principle is in Matthew chapter 18. That famous passage on how to handle conflict within the church. Which is interesting that the word church is actually used there in the book of Matthew. Now that, but that's another topic. If you want to learn what that means, come join our LFBI class on, on the book of Matthew this fall. But anyway, Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 and 16 say... Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between, him and thee, between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And I, I take the time to point out all those verses, first of all, to show you that everything Paul does is according to the word of God. But secondly... To point out that every time this principle is applied, this, when you need two or three witnesses, it's over very serious things. We're talking about murder. We're talking about Christ's deity. We're talking about an accusation against an elder. And ultimately, we're talking about church discipline. Because that's where Matthew 18 ends. Matthew 18, verse 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him, let him be unto thee as a heathen man, and a publican. 
And that's the exact same thing Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 13.2 when he says, If I come again and you guys are still in sin, I will not spare. He's saying I won't spare you. I will do what I have to do to protect the church, even if that means kicking you out. So the context of verse 2, I want you to know, is church discipline. That's the context of verse 2 when he says, if I come again, I will not spare. I will not spare you. And church discipline, in general, is something that, while it is quite provable in Scripture, is somewhat controversial today in the church, certainly the church at large, since postmodernism has crept in to the church. And and it was before my time here, and, and, I, and I don't even, I'm not going to go into the details, but I know that this, that was something that this church dealt with not too many years ago. And I know that many people struggled with it for, for many reasons, most of whom aren't here any longer. And I'm not here to talk into that situation specifically this morning. But, but I want you to know that there is a dilemma that the church is facing today. And the dilemma is a softness on sin. It is an accepting attitude of something that God hates. And and that accepting attitude might even come out of good intentions. But it does not mean that it is not misguided. And this is something we all need to make personal as well, but, and we're going to get into the detail of that in our last point this morning, but how often are we not only soft on the sin of others, but our own sin as well? Or, or maybe we're not soft on the sin of others, but we don't apply that same level of scrutiny to ourselves. And, I, and I'm not talking about going back to legalistic standards that are man-made and not even biblical. No, I'm not talking about that at all. But I am talking about being true to this book and being true to what God deserves in our life and in our church. So just look, for example, at a passage like Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. It says, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination. Here's what they are. A proud look. A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and the seventh an abomination, he that soweth discord among the brethren. What about Proverbs 8, 13? It says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Because God hates evil and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth. Here's what God says about it. Those things do I hate. Do you understand the seriousness of something that God hates? Yet if the truth be told, how many of those things apply to our lives? And we just don't see them as that bad. We exhibit pride and lying and arrogance. And we just go about our day. God hates it. 
And listen to me, First Baptist Church, a good King James truth-loving church, that happens because even though we know what the Bible says and we believe the Bible, we still have accepted and adopted our own truth. That's a dilemma. It's a dilemma both on a corporate and a personal level. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save, neither is ear heavy, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Listen, this is serious. And of course, those verses are directed at the nation of Israel, but don't think that they don't apply to us as well because sin does break fellowship with God and it will hinder our prayers. And when we allow it in our lives and in our church, we cannot, we cannot expect his power in our lives and in our church. He does not work that way. It requires repentance and going back to the word of God as truth not your own determination. That means the word of God must dominate the church and must dominate the Christian and bear its God-intended power and authority over all who hear it. You see, the only way, listen to me, the only way that the church, including this church, will ever effectively counter the dilemma of our time, this moral crisis, this spiritual crisis, the only way we'll overcome it is when the word of God is working powerfully in the church to produce not just information, but holiness. And I hope you heard that. Because holiness is the key. The impact of this church and the impact of your life is connected to your holiness personally and our holiness collectively. You know, there's a lot said about churches today and, and how to be effective and what methodology we should use and, and how we really should, the, the best way to reach the masses and to do this and that and how to be effective for the Lord. Most of it's nonsense. Here's the truth. But because I admit there is a problem with the church. And we're not reaching the masses like we should be. We're not doing what God has for us to do. But the problem with the church isn't that we have bad methodology or bad technology. You know how important live streaming is today, especially since COVID. That's how the world thinks. The problem the church has is that it's lost its interest in holiness. Churches and church members have become content to be fellowships of independent members with minimal accountability to God and even less to each other. Sin is accepted. At the very least, it's overlooked. And the truth of God's word is only selectively applied. Listen, sin being addressed from the pulpit and or within the context of ministry relationships seems to be a dying thing. And that's not what God intended for the church. The church is to be a family of believers who are committed to the Lord, so we come together partly to hold each other accountable. That is what Paul assumed 
of the church. That that was part of the deal. Romans 15, 14 says, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, the, the, the church at Rome there, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And do you know what the word admonish means in that verse? It, it means to warn, to reprove, to hold accountable. Paul said, I believe that all you guys are full of goodness, and you know the word of God. Therefore, you are able to speak truth in love. You know the word, and you're full of goodness. You can do it in love. You can speak truth in love, as Ephesians 4.15 says we should do. And you should do that with one another. That's part of what being a church member means. It also means you're open to receiving admonition from another brother or sister. If he or she is right and it's done in love, you should be glad for it. So you should willingly place yourself under the authority structure of this church because you don't want to fall into unrepentant sin. And if you are living a life outside of God's will, you should want someone to call you on it and to help you through it. There's great protection for the church and for you. And it fosters holiness. And it gives the church power. And it gives you power. That's why, going back to the context of church discipline, it, it is a good thing. I mean, the Bible requires it in certain situations, so it has to be good. But even beyond that, you should view it as a good thing for you personally because it provides protection. Because you shouldn't want to be part of the dilemma. You should want to be part of the solution. But how did we get here? As a, as a church, universal, how did we get here? How did we get to this place to where we're accepting of sin and we, we make our own truth? And I know it's part of prophecy, there has to be a falling away, an apostasy, and, and that's Laodicea. That's moving away from the preserved word of God as our standard, as our final authority in life. But beyond that, and for us personally, how do we get to some of the places that we've gotten to in our life? Maybe you're there right now. How do we become part of the dilemma? Well, it's because just like the Corinthians, we've bought into point number two, the deception. We've bought into the deception and we've been deceived. That's what Paul was talking about in verses 3 and 4 of our text. Look there with me. <clears throat> he just says, listen, if I come back, if I get there, you're still in sin. I'm not going to spare you. And he says, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you were does not weak, but is mighty in you. And I'll explain all this. For though he is crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. You see, the Corinthians were looking at the wrong things. They didn't even believe that Christ was speaking through Paul. They wanted a proof. This is the guy that led them to the Lord, the guy that started the church. They had bought into the lies of the false apostles that we've talked about at length already. And they had been deceived. They had been deceived about Paul. And in conjunction with that, they had been deceived about what constitutes real strength and real weakness. So, because Paul didn't speak like those other guys did. That, that, that's what he's saying there. Since you speak as a, proof, a proof of Christ speaking to me, which the you word is weak. You think what I say is weak. You think I, I talk weak. And, and, and he's addressed this before. They called his speech contemptible. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, 
They called it rude or rudimentary in, in 2 Corinthians eleven six. But he's quick to tell them they were looking at the wrong things. Because it, it was actually mighty because it was of the Lord. He said it was mighty and you don't even know this because you've been deceived. You think that I'm weak. You think my speech is weak. It's actually been mighty in you. You're saved. You know how to serve the Lord. You're just seeing things wrong right now. And so, so he's trying to get them back to focus on the right things. And listen, he had already addressed this. He had already told him this back in 1 Corinthians even. Because he knew where real strength and real power came from. And it wasn't in the way he spoke. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you, speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not, was not, was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what Paul was about. And shame on the Corinthians. They should have known. They shouldn't have been deceived, but they were. And we are too, sometimes. And we get messed up regarding what the power of God really is and what it really looks like. We get fooled. Because there are things going on in the name of Christ. And churches doing things in the name of Christ. And it might look good, but it's not good. And they're confused about really how God's power works. And, and sometimes we even think we're serving the Lord. But if we're doing it in the flesh, in our own strength, it's not pleasing to the Lord. That's what Romans 8.8 8 tells us. Therefore, there is no power. There's no power in your flesh. Anything you do for the Lord in the flesh is, is worth nothing. You have to do it through him and through his power. And Paul says this in, in, in verse 3. He tells us this. And that's the key to not messing this up. And Because we, we have to understand what he really means here. And we, first we need to understand that though Christ was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. This is the key to not being deceived. Understanding what that means. Understanding where true power resides and what true weakness means. Understanding the life and death of Christ and the power that comes from it. Now, the fact is, Christ laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. So that's not what Paul means when he says he was crucified through weakness. And we know this from John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. He says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So, so when Paul says he was crucified in weakness, it's not that you know, he, he, he tried to overcome those Roman guards. He just couldn't do it. You know, they, were, they were stronger than him. So if it doesn't mean that, you know, what does it mean? Well, it means that the second person of the Trinity, God himself, the one who spoke the world into existence, the infinite, became mortal. 
Christ's weakness was found in his mortality. He was found in fashion as a man. He didn't have to do that. But praise the Lord he did. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. His weakness was his humanness and, and, and his humility. But because he did that, he liveth by the power of God. And, and what that means is, is through the resurrection. That's Romans 1, verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. And, and how? By the resurrection from the dead. And Paul says that's the key. That's how you keep from being deceived. Because verse 4 says, For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. And so what does that mean? That means the only way to have the power of God in your life is to give up your flesh and to live his life. Death to self and life through him. It's a life of dying. It's a life of humility. I mean, we saw that in the last chapter. And Paul is, is summarizing sort of the, the, the core, what's really going on, what's really the problem, and what's really the solution. And so that means you've got to go to the cross. You have to experience that weakness too. See, the, the cross is a symbol of something very real. In our experience, I want you to think about this. What was Christ like on the cross? He wasn't powerful. He wasn't impressive. He wasn't significant. He was not being applauded by the multitudes who listened to his every word. No. While he laid his life down willingly, the cross was absolutely a place of displayed weakness. A place of rejection by the proud and the arrogant world around him. The cross was a place of obscurity. A place where he was willing to, to lose everything, trusting God to bring it back. That is what the call of death to self looks like. Are you willing to give up all the things that make you look important to other people? To take the place of obscurity... If necessary, trusting God to use it however he will. That is being weak in him. Listen, today, again, in a postmodern world, we are being assaulted on every side by the cult of human rights. I deserve this or I deserve that. I want to be recognized. I want to be acknowledged. I want to be known. I want to be affirmed. But this truth cuts across all of that. That is the very thing that the cross says has to die. We must come to the end of our dependence on ourselves and rest upon the willingness of God to be at work in us even if no one else acknowledges it and if no one else affirms it. Because the truth is when God is at work in your life like that, 
He is at work to change your whole character until it's like Jesus in the midst of rejection and in the midst of, of missing recognition. Are you willing to do that so that you can have the power of God? But herein is the struggle, isn't it? We want the power of God, but doggone it, we want credit for it too. And if God does anything through us, we sure would like it if somebody else notices. And, and we want the power of God, we really do, but we want the satisfaction of our flesh too. That's the deception. At least for the serving Christian. That you can have your cake and eat it too. It's a postmodern way of thinking because it's not the truth. It's not the truth. It's not what this book says. I'm sorry. I wish it was. I promise you I do. Now, for the non-serving Christian, the deception's a little different. In that case, there's nothing more that Satan wants to do than to get you to think you're all right when you're not. And maybe you've got a little bit of sin in your life, but it's okay. Listen, God knows we're sinners. He understands. And you're not really connected to the church these days, but it's a different world out there than it used to be. And there's a lot going on. And, you know, you still pray and you still, still see the power of God in your life circumstances. I mean, he got you that new job. I mean, the kids, are, kids, are, kids have good friends. They're doing well. And life is about what you want out of it, not what God wants out of you. But really, who can be expected to give their life fully to the Lord in this way, like those preachers talk about. I mean, that has to be, at least at some level, that has to be a fantasy. All I can say is you fall into the de deception of the greatest deceiver ever. Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Listen, either way, while it's serving in your flesh or it's justifying your own lack of serving, it's just like the Corinthians, you're looking at the wrong things. And you're being fooled by how things look. Because listen, not all power is the power of God. There are other entities out there that have power too. Not everything that you think is of the Lord really is. Because that's what a deceiver does. He makes it look like the real thing. It wouldn't be deception if, if that wasn't the case. But not everything is. That applies to people. That applies to churches. There are people at churches out there that look like they've got it going on. And they look successful. And some people want that. And they want to be a part of that. And they get fooled because it seems powerful. But the truth is, God is nowhere near it unless it is done through him. And I'm not making judgment on anybody, and I'm not making judgment on any church. I mean that. I promise you that. Listen, I'm guilty of this. We're all guilty at a certain level. That's not the point of this. I'm not calling out, again, no, no individual person. I'm not calling out any individual church. I think our church is guilty too. That's why it burdens me. But God's nowhere near anything that, that's, unless it's done through our weakness and his power. That's what God's involved in. And if it's not done that way, it's not him. 
So if, if it looks powerful, it's a deception. Through his strength, which is only shown in our weakness, in our humility, in our death. So don't fall for it. Don't fall for the deception. So there's a dilemma. And it's sin in the church and sin in our lives. And, and that sin plays out in the church through service in the flesh. And the sin in our life plays out through our justification, our lack of accountability. And it happens because the, the devil's got us right where he wants us. And, and, and he's a deceiver. And, and, and we fell for it because it feels better. And it feels right. And it feels a lot better than this whole death to self thing. That doesn't feel good. That's terrible. And so this, this, this looks like a better option. It's just a different truth. It's just a different truth. And so he lulls us to sleep and we think we're okay when we're not. And Paul knows how big of a problem that this is. Certainly, certainly was for the Corinthians. And God knows how big of a problem it is for us today. So he doesn't leave us there. He gives us the answer. Now, you're not going to like it. I didn't like it. But he gives us the answer. And the answer is found in verses 5 and 6. And it's number 3, the decision. It's simply the decision you must make to examine yourself honestly before the Lord. Look at verse 5. Paul cuts through it all. He, he, lays, he lays out uh, the problem. He, he lays out the reason why. And now he says, you know what? Examine yourselves. First two words. Right to the point. He doesn't him haul around. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says, you know what you need to do? You need to examine yourselves. Whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. You see, the answer to all this is to look within yourself with honesty. To go back to the beginning and accept God's perfect word as the only standard. Objective truth. And use that as your mirror. You just have to respond to what you see. That's what James tells us, James 1, verses 23 through 24. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. How often does that describe us? Man, we, look, we, we, we know, we know that we're not what God wants us to be. And we look at that mirror and we're like, well, I'll come back to that tomorrow. Oh, I'll look again next week. I'm, I'm going I'm to go about my day and you forget. You forget what manner of man you are. You see, how do you look compared to the word of God? And when you see something that doesn't match up, do you change what you need to change? Do you repent of what you need to repent of? That's how you see whether you're in the faith or not. Because that doesn't, that doesn't just mean whether you are saved or not. There, that's certainly an application to that. That's where to start for all of us. Are you in the faith? Are you in Christ? Have you placed your faith in Christ? But if you have done that, if you can answer honestly yes to that question, well, well that, this verse still applies because are you continuing in the faith? Are you applying? Are you walking, according to Colossians, are you walking as you were saved? In that grace, by the faith, grace through faith. Are you applying Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23? And you who were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of this flesh 
through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Are, are you continuing? Are you walking in that faith, trusting in him alone? That means you... How'd you get saved? You put your faith in Jesus Christ. There was not one thing you can do to get saved other than placing your faith. Your flesh has nothing to do with it. You can't work your way to heaven. Well, that's how God set up the Christian life too. Are you continuing in that? As a, as a Christian, are you walking in that faith? That means no flesh. That means dying to yourself. He has to do the work. He has to do it, he, he, and he does it in and through you as you're willing to lay your life down as he did. The next, according to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, prove your own selves. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. The Bible says, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. So that includes you. You're a part of all things. That means don't take your own word for it. You're not trustworthy enough. You lie to yourself all the time, and you know it. So prove it. And how do you prove your own self? It's simple. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, dying to yourself, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So you prove yourself that you are living in the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How? By not conforming to this world. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you're, you're not postmodern. And you're not creating and living your own truth. Here's what you're doing. You're renewing your mind by washing it daily in the word of God. That's how you prove. That's how you prove yourselves. You're not transformed to this world. You don't believe the truth that they're selling you. No, you get in the word of God every day and you renew your mind. And you let that lead you. Speaking of the church in Ephesians 5, Paul says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with, with the washing of of water by the word. That's how you prove yourself. You prove yourself in his word. As you stay clean, you stay free from sin running rampant in your life. 2 Corinthians 7.1, having therefore these promises, the promises of God in his word, and it specifically it was what came out of chapter 6, but the, the, the promises of God's word. Having these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So let me give you an example. If you've been working on your car, you've been working out in the yard all day and your hands are dirty, you come in the house, you go into the bathroom and you clean yourself with soap and water or whatever, right? You, you, don't, you don't stay dirty like that. You get clean. And you deliberately choose to use that soap and water that's available. And when you're done, you can say, I've cleansed myself. Well, the fact is, it wasn't you that did the cleansing. It was the soap and water that did the work. You just applied it. And that's exactly how, as a believer, you stay clean and stay free from sin. And, and of course, that doesn't mean you'll never sin again. But, but, but there's a difference in, in sinning and being accepting of sin. And it's all about your attitude towards sin and your choice, your decision as you examine and improve yourselves. Do you choose to use the Bible to apply it to your life for cleansing? And for proving, do you renew your mind in the cleansing power of the word? 
Have you, or have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And then when you examine yourselves honestly and you prove yourself, then you know yourself. You know if you're living the life of a reprobate or not. That is someone without Christ. Because listen, there are people that have Christ, that are in Christ, but they're not living like it. And, and they're living the life of a reprobate. And that was one of Paul's great fears, that he would become one, but he would become a reprobate. That's why he said in verse 6, by trust ye shall know that we are not reprobates. I mean, that was also Paul being a little sarcastic again. He was affirming his apostleship. He was saying, listen, when all this comes to bear, you're going to know. We're going to know all of it. We're going to know you, and you're going to know me. And you're going to know that I'm not the one. I'm not a reprobate. So he's coming on, you know, a little bit, little bit harsh to him there. But this was serious to him. And he lived his life a certain way because of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, Paul talks about that. He said, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And that word castaway, it means reprobate. In fact, it's the same Greek word. It's just translated castaway here, and it's translated reprobate in other places, or, or even in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. But it's the, same, it's the same meaning. Paul said, I'm in a fight with my flesh, and I fight hard, and I bring it into subjection because I don't want to be a reprobate. I don't want to be a castaway. I don't want to talk about Christ and not live like Christ. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And how do you avoid that? How you fight that fight is through personal examination. Honestly examining yourself, proving yourself so that you know yourself. And this is a personal examination, but it also reminds me so much of a passage in Psalm 139 where David is asking the Lord to do this same thing. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And listen, this is a powerful verse and this is a sermon all in its own. But Because God already knows what's in you and God already knows what's in me. But there is something as part of a personal examination to opening yourself up to the Lord. And not only allowing him to do those things, but asking him to do those things. And to point out within you anything that is wicked, anything that he hates. And again, you do that as you use this book as your only standard, as your mirror. And when something isn't right, you change it. You don't blame anyone else. You don't look for a scapegoat. You're honest, and you do the work to change. That's the solution. That's the decision you have to make personally to ensure that you're not part of the dilemma and that you don't fall for the deception. And that's really the answer. It's the only one. It's the only way. It's simple. It's not necessarily easy, but it's simple. You just have to be willing to let the truth of God's word be the truth in your life. Don't compromise on that. Because if you compromise on that, you'll compromise on everything else. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And As we bring this service to an end, I, I just want to ask you, 
Will you examine yourself this morning? Will you take this time and, and the words that God spoke to you this morning to look within and, and to see if you are part of the dilemma, to see if you've been deceived? Or to see if you're in the faith. I, I told you that verse meant more than just in the faith with respect to salvation, but I don't, I don't want to miss that application because it certainly means that as well. So are you? Have you placed your faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross as a payment for your sin? Have you exchanged your sinful, sinful life for his perfect one? If not, you can do that right now. And I'm going to pray and we're going to sing one final song. And, and if you have any questions about getting saved, why don't you come forward while we're singing and, and, and we'll have someone show you what it means and how you can settle that in your heart today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We're, we're so thankful for your word. And, and, and Lord, I, I do pray that the words that were said today, I understand the harshness of them. I understand um, that it's a hard saying. And Lord, I, I did my best to be true to what you taught me um, through your word. And I pray that everyone hears it in that spirit. Um, Lord, we're in this together. And, and Lord, I, I desire for this church more than anything to have your power. And the best I see it, there's only one way to that. There's only one way to that end. I don't care what we do if we do it in our, in our flesh. It doesn't mean anything. I don't want that. I don't want to be a part of that. Lord, I, I, I want to be used by you. I, I want you to have all the glory. And Lord, I pray that us individually will ask ourselves that question. And as a church, Lord, I pray that you will move us to that end. To be used by you to see your power work in our lives, in the lives of our children, in the lives of our families, in our marriages, at our jobs. Lord, please use us. But Lord, I know we got to decide. we got to decide to get out of the way. And Lord, that's a tough decision. Lord, I pray for everyone in here as we all look at our own personal lives and examine ourselves. That your Holy Spirit will do the work that only it can. Lord, to convince us and to convict us of the truth of your word and and our need for it and it alone in our life. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.